Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, the show that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks and streamers but never produced, and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and host of Dead Pilot Society. Uh, once again, I told you last week, but once again, we've got big news. We are going to be doing our first live show since the pandemic began. That is right, Dead Pilot Society is coming back to a live theater in 2023. January 12th at the Elysian Theater on Riverside Drive, we're going to be bringing you something very special. We'll be reading three episodes of a show that never was. Whelan Motors it was written by Brooks Whelan and Isaac Rents. Brooks is a comedian, an actor, a podcaster, a former cast member on Saturday Night Live. Isaac is an amazing music video director. Uh, they not only sold a pilot to Fox, but they had them write an additional two episodes, and they made none of them. But we're going to be reading all three live with an incredible cast, including Tim Heidecker, Jermaine Fowler, Carrie Kenny Silver, Bobby Moynihan. Alyssa Limpiris, Paul Shear, and more. Go to ElysianTheater.com for tickets and info. You do not want to miss the live return of Dead Pilot Society, January 12th, 2023. All right, this is the after show for Dear America, We've Seen You Naked by Scotty Landis. I hope everyone listened to the table read and it maybe made you look at those TSA agents uh, when you were going through security on your way to your holiday travel a little bit differently. We get more into the story behind this pilot, the article that was supposed to be turned into a book but never was. Uh, Scotty's got a great breaking into show business story, which, like a lot of the best breaking in stories, does involve a bit of dishonesty. Uh, he's worked in a lot of different genres. He's worked in reality TV and semi-scripted reality comedy and horror film. I think this is an inspiring interview uh, about just how to craft a diverse career in this crazy new show business reality. So enjoy my conversation with Scotty Landis after a brief message. Hi everyone, I'm Ella McLeod. And I'm Alexis B. Preston. And we host a show called Comfort Creatures, the show for every animal lover, be it a creature of scales, six legs, fur, feathers, or fiction. Comfort Creatures is a show for people who prefer their friends to have paws instead of hands. Unless they are raccoon hands, that is okay. That is absolutely okay, yeah. Yes. Every Thursday, we'll be talking to guests about their pets, learning about pets in history, art, and even fiction. Plus, we'll discover differences between pet ownership across the pond. It's going to be a hoot on Maximum Fun. Scotty, man, this was uh, this was so much fun. I've really I loved hearing hearing the script, and um, I'm so intrigued by the whole history of this. So I went back. I read that that Politico article. Right, it's a pretty good article, right? Yeah, it's good. I mean, it really is. Like I said, it's, it reminds me of Kitchen Confidential in yes. that way. You know, that for New Yorker article was just like, okay, we're pulling the curtain back on this on this thing that everyone deals with but you don't know the inside the gross inside story of it yes that was um for dear america that was uh, i i had read that you know on reddit or whatever years before and then somebody sent it to me one of my agents sent it to me and i read it and they were like hey somebody optioned this which at that time so many things like that were getting optioned to become books or jumping from social media to book to television. And so it wasn't surprising, but I immediately saw the show because it was seedier. 
I think a lot of people wonder what TSA does really and what they're really up to. And a lot of times, whether you've had good experiences or bad experiences, or I guess like most of us now, mixed experiences, um, it partially felt like a jobs program. And it partially felt like sometimes the people who were scanning you or whatever, just like all of us didn't want to be there, didn't want to do it. And yet, if they let a bomb through, people die. (laughs) So I was, I thought right away, I could see the characters of the conflict. And as somebody, you know, who travels enough, I was just seeing these people on a monthly basis. And you, you wonder what their real life is like. And was there some kind of bake-off in order to, to get the gig, you know, when that article was optioned, were you competing with other people to, you know, sell yourself as the one to do this adaptation? I believe so. Um, I think Anonymous and Paramount Studios or Paramount TV, um, this was pre-Paramount Plus as a streamer, had optioned it. And I'm not sure if anybody at Anonymous was representing the writer, the political writer. Um, But I went in and, and met sort of generally at Paramount TV and just kind of pitched my version very loosely. I wouldn't even say it was a formal pitch. It was sort of, here's who I think the main character is, James and mine, based on the actual writer. And um, I had never written such a wide ensemble of a TV show before, but that's what drew me to it. I was excited to try to write like nine main characters. So it was fun. And that's, uh, yeah, I want to talk about that because Scotty, man, this was uh, this was so much fun. I've really I loved hearing hearing the script, and um, you know, so you've got the yeah, you've got the guy who wrote it, um, who's this kind of you know wannabe writer who's yes. doing this as um, so that I can see how you got from there to James, and in the article they talk about the imaging room, yeah, the IO above, room, yeah. the IO room, mm-hmm. and then. Um, just filling in folks at home for what's in this article. What was fun is there's like a little sort of terminology glossary of of like the 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 lingo that they see, <laughs> which is half of which is different words for hot female passengers. So That's yeah, right. it's, it's like a code red <laughs> is a hot female passenger wearing red. A yellow alert is a hot female passenger wearing yellow. And it's just like, so that's... Um, you know, what's in the article and there's a lot about the scanners and how those scanners when they first rolled them out are just like bullshit and was you could yes you could you could bring a gun into that scanner and if you're standing sideways it can't see the gun but That's so right. so it really it wasn't like this thing lays lays a show out for you right so how did you go about deciding how to people the sh- populate i guess is the right verb how to populate the show with these other characters well I'd been working in TV for a while, but before that I had worked many, many jobs, uh, including waiting tables in a lot of different cities and states. And so I sort of picked the biggest personalities from not only TV sets, uh, I had a gaffer that would just talk about nothing forever. And so that was Ray Ball. That character was, he would come up to you and no matter what you said, He would regale you with a story that was overly romanticized and ultimately completely boring. Um, (laughs) He's he's my favorite character in the whole thing, by the way. I love Ray Ball. (laughs) Yes, thank me too. Um, And and that's the type of character that in other scripts, I would just steal that character and put him in other things. It's sort of your Cliff Clavin type. Um, 
I pulled from characters in real life, pieced them together because you find no matter where the workplace is in real life, there are people that sort of fall into those slots. So I just picked my all-stars for my own life and wanted it to be very diverse, wanted to have really strong, funny female characters in there too. So it wasn't just about the main character, James, but he was really surrounded. And when you walk up to a TSA checkpoint, there are like 10 employees standing there and some seem way more engaged. Some seem like they think they're in the military and others you can tell just love that they have a chair at their station because they don't want to stand up all day. I really just tried to pluck personalities uh, who I personally worked with and slugged them in and make them feel a little more universal than just like your typical TV characters. And were some of those people that you were basing these characters on, were they actors, performers? Were you writing with like, you know, them in mind as? You know, it was interesting. I thought James might be Tone Bell because I'd worked with Tone a few times and I wanted someone that would, if you, if you talk to them and they said, I'm working on a novel, you wouldn't roll your eyes. And even though Tone, when I wrote this back in 2017 or 2018, it was a younger guy I just felt like he had a seriousness to him like he could be funny but you, you would also believe that he was um, an aspiring writer so other than that I was very open to it I was still I believe on workaholics at the time so it was just a really fun side project that we all felt was going to go because we all thought the novel would be a hit because it's a funny article and we just could see it being, like you said, Kitchen Confidential is an excellent comp and we were waiting on it and it just never arrived. And so the guy just took his advance and went to Bogota and... That's told- all I know. And <laughs> I did speak to him once. And also he maybe tried, like I don't know beyond when I was just, they told me that they weren't moving forward with this project. Um, I was, they said, we thought the book would be out by now at least two publishers and so if you want to hold on for another year we can give you notes but we're not going to pay you more and so it didn't die it just sort of faded in a way that even after our read a couple of those actors who I'm friends with were like you should just take this back out you you should just go have fun with this and I might yeah yeah I mean it feels like I don't know why there's a world where like superstore is a show that runs for many years and this isn't uh-huh. and this isn't a show you know and now and, and i say that you know it's not fully realizing that there's a million reasons why you know because it's of just course. a total crapshoot why one project gets you know through the process and another one yeah doesn't but the you know it's uh you know it's such a fun group of people and it's the kind of thing where ultimately that's what the show is you know it doesn't really you know it, it's uh, it, it's a job that matters a lot more than like the, the paper company in, in the office or something, but ultimately it's just these relationships and a genuinely organically diverse mm-hmm. workplace. I mean, which is rare. Yeah. I think that was part of the appeal is the TSA does feel very diverse. And yeah. I picked Chicago O'Hare as the airport because growing up, you knew your lo- I grew up in Maryland. You, I knew BWI. And then the only other airport I knew by name was Chicago O'Hare. And I think now maybe Atlanta Hartsfield has the same thing, but 
I wanted to place a dead smack in the middle. I felt that everybody who's been to the airport would have an opinion on these people. It just felt, and I'm sure you remember this, in 2016, around that era, a lot of people are like talking about red state and blue state in TV mm-hmm. writing and like, how do we appeal to the heartland? And yeah. Not that that's ever gone away, but it was really front and center. So I smacked it in Chicago and really made it a fun, diverse uh, lineup of characters just so it felt like everybody everywhere would be like, oh, my gosh, I could picture the billboard. I could picture the poster and having people read that title and just at least check out the pilot. That was my goal. Yeah. Did you. um so you said you spoke to this guy, Jason, Jason Harrington, right? It's the guy who wrote the article. You spoke Correct. to him once, right? One time. And was the hazing of the the new guys, was that something you got from him? Or was that something that you just kind of like, okay, this will be a great engine. You know, I, you need to have the new person who's bringing who's coming into the world as a way for the audience to get to know the world and that hazing thing was that hazing thing from reality or just an invention of yours that was an invention so there is a there's a lot of layers to this pilot the first <laughs> one being i i had the general meeting and then they were like they they like you they think you're good for this they wanted it to feel a little loose even for like a network show they wanted it to feel like a little edgy and i went in and did a full pitch. And during that, I pitched a pilot story that is not this one, and they approved that one. And I wrote a full first draft, outline in first draft of that one, and then started getting notes from one of the development people, not at Paramount, uh, I think they were at Anonymous, that completely upended it and said, I don't get this, I don't think this is funny. Uh, and maybe it needs to be more like somebody's first day. Cause I didn't want to do necessarily like a premise pilot, but then they were like, no, it should be somebody's first day. So I created the Mike character and the hazing based on notes and completely threw out the entire first version of that. Do you remember what that, what the story was of that discarded version? I do. It was that a national celebrity like Sully Sullenberger uh, was flying to Hawaii to get a key from the mayor of Oahu or whatever as being a national hero after his star had sort of fallen and his moment was away. So he was fully drunk. He was had gotten <laughs> annihilated drunk at the airport bar and everybody at TSA knew who he was. and People were taking selfies with him and they let him through to fly the plane completely drunk. So they, it was about how do you not embarrass a national hero who landed a plane in a snowfield when the engines were on fire and stop him. Uh, and they were all about it. Cause you just had this drunk, uh, like I got like Tom Scarrett, like you'd have someone actor mm-hmm. like that and just pretending to be the most annihilated he can be and like winking and grabbing TSA agents butts and then he's going to go fly a plane that he's going to go get a key. And he refuses to say no, which was a fun problem, but it was upended. So I actually rebroke and re-outlined and got it approved. And by the time I got to the draft that we read on the table read, uh, I was at the point where it was sort of like, take it or like, this is it. I'm not doing another version of this because I basically gave you two pilots for the price of one. And then remind me, I can't remember if we talked about this before the read. So what happened? So you really, it wasn't, you weren't taking the pitch out to buyers 
you were going to write the, you were going to take a full script out to networks and, and streamers. That was the plan. Correct. I actually had dinner last night with one of the Paramount TV people and told him about this and uh, he was no longer there. And I said to him what, you know, my side of the story. And he was, he said that their team was lining this up to be their first comedy release on Paramount plus that internally, everybody was looking at this to be like a flagship show and that they were all behind it. And then it just died for whatever reason. Uh, it was never, nobody ever was like, we're moving in another direction. It just sort of hit this wall. And then I think everybody was just crestfallen because the book never came out. We didn't have a bestseller to leapfrog frog over. So it was supposed to go there. We did pitch once to Comedy Central, but it wasn't a Comedy Central show at the time. And I think that was more of a practice thing. And maybe one other place, but it never went to like Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or anything like that. It never went to and, uh, Fox or NBC or CBS either. I think it was always gearing up to be a network-esque, you know, at one point I think it was a multi-cam and then this became more of a single cam. It was like a lot of things within a year <laughs> of development. And I kind of, I always thought it was a great idea. I always wanted to breathe life back into it, but you just kind of move on. And until you guys helped me out and had this, uh, had the table read, I had not heard it or read it since probably 2018. So it was nice. Yeah. I mean, you know, almost all the time on this, it's the writer's first time hearing yes. the script, you know, um, and, uh, you know, which is, you know, it's why we, it's a big part of why we do it just so you get to, and this is one, you know, look, we did, we broke our usual rules because what, you know, almost we try, most of the things we do have been, you know, we're sold to networks or streamers, right. but not shot. I actually learned talking to you right before the read that it had never been sold. Happy to break that. Uh, I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. It's a rule, honestly, that I just made up to keep from getting inundated with a billion scripts that didn't need, you know, there's something about like, okay, if they were sold somewhere, there's probably at least, you know, decent. And if you open it up to everyone's like specs, then it's, it's a problem. But this was correct. This, this was a case where it did go, th you, you did go through a development process. Absolutely. It was just at the studio instead of at a streamer or network. Um, but yeah, that's, I guess, that that ip issue like where they think okay we're going to be able to launch this because it's like based on the best-selling book and then that goes away and i can see how that suddenly makes it vanish having nothing to do with the quality of the material yes i think it was that and it was still so early in the streaming process that sitcoms hadn't really worked on any of the streamers and paramount plus what i think paramount plus took two more years before it even came out so I believe they were lining up their slate. They were trying to get things going. Around the same time I interviewed to be a part of Boomerang, they were going to do a series uh, that on the Eddie Murphy movie Boomerang. And so it felt like, hey, we're gearing up. Here comes all this stuff. Be a yeah. part of this, this wave. And I felt like I was in on that, um, on the cutting edge of that. But then, yeah, I mean, it paid it paid well. Like it felt like it was going to be a real job and we, the deal was a good deal. And I was ready to shoot it. I would, I thought for sure we would shoot this one. Right. It's just, you know, it, I don't know. It seems like it would have worked and might still, 
Yes. It might, it, it might still. Um, yeah, when you hear it, it's just like, these are fun. It's just fun characters. And the dynamics among them are great. And it just feels like, okay, this is a good workplace comedy. And there's not a ton of those workplace comedies out there. And, you know. Um, I appreciate so, that. So let's back up because I don't really know too. I, I I don't know a ton about you, Scotty. So we let's, don't know each other. We don't, and we don't, which is exciting. So uh, I'm intrigued. You have a very, uh, you've got a fascinating resume, kind of. So tell me, how did this all start? So you're from Maryland. From Maryland, and- grew up just north of Baltimore, and I went to college in at UMass Amherst and didn't study TV or film at all because they didn't really have a department that wasn't an option. I knew I didn't want to be part of like the drama department. I I had no aspirations of being an actor. And at some point I started a cable access TV show that aired on campus. And then there's a small little Amherst cable access station. And we, we only made eight episodes over three years but it was enough and I was sort of the ringleader and I did most of the sketch writing and it was enough to make me know that I could sit down and write and that I enjoyed when people on campus would either quote stuff back to me or kids in class would yell out jokes that I'd written in sketches and I didn't, they didn't know I was in this big oceanography class. So it put the, I just knew I could do it. And I had a very good friend uh, who helped me. I would write features on word docs and give it to this my buddy lee and he would format them for me so (laughs) basically i just had a a few friends and supportive people and the show was enough of a hit uh, on the little local campus that i moved to new york uh, right after college and started to hang out with all the comedians that i respected just by going to the free shows or the five dollar shows the back of the bar shows And slowly I was able to kind of watch everybody over a year or two and see who was going to be a star, who I really thought had something special, an original voice. And I befriended those people for a few years before I ever told them I was an aspiring writer. So when they started to make it and they would panic because IFC wanted to hear a pitch or Comedy Central wanted to hear a pitch, I would step in and say, I've already written a pilot for you. Or I think this is a pitch that I've already written for you. And then we would go in and I would pitch with them as like a creative partner collaborator. And, and that's who how I got were some in. of those people? Kristen Shaw was a huge supporter. Um, Chelsea Peretti and the Variety Shack women who were four women that had a show called Variety Shack. Um, Kurt Brownoller, who I still collaborate with on many things. There were some rising sort of like YouTube influencers at the time. Uh, Grace Helbig, Mamrie Hart who all were getting generals in a world where none of us had any reps and none of us knew what we were doing. Slowly things started coming together. But Kristen and Kurt were the two that were like, you're our writer. And we started making web series for super deluxe and we started doing things together. And suddenly people just knew like we moved as a team and it was fun. It was a really innocent, fun time. And it was a great group of comedians that looking back, it was a really good class of like great people. Yeah. No, those, I mean, it sounds like those are the moments, right? Those are, that's as good as it gets. Like there's not a ton of money. There's not a ton of expectations. It's just you doing it for the absolute love of it. Yes. And the sense that 
you know, in high school, growing up in high school and in college, always had friends, was able to get people to laugh and stuff. But you, I still always felt slightly on the outside, slightly like I wasn't quite connecting. And then moving to New York and then those early, early years of just going to those shows and seeing what was getting big laughs and writing sketches or jokes for people and watching performers nail it, it, it not only helped me find my voice, but it allowed me to find people that all of a sudden I felt that I wasn't an idiot, that I wasn't wrong and that I probably could get through. And then what I noticed around that time too, is I was secretly writing scripts and features for everybody without telling them for years, <laughs> for years, I was like, I need to know how to be on set. So I started writing, I worked for a temp company and they were really great. And they got me through a lot of lean years. And one of the jobs was stuffing envelopes for fire safety for uh, apartment management company. So basically every year they have to go have these by your doors and have this fire extinguisher and make sure you have this. So I stuffed something like 12,000 of those in one month by myself in a closet, listening <laughs> to Howard Stern for the first time in my life. And I started seeing celebrities names on these apartments. So I started writing postcards to celebrities like, or at least creative people like Penny Marshall and Abe Vigoda and Michael Rappaport <laughs> and Helmut Lang and all these names. And I would just write things like Penny, great hanging out. You always give the best advice. Thanks for everything. See you soon. Scotty Landis. And I would write my name as clearly <laughs> and big as I could and then mail it. So I started doing that. Uh, like, I mean, Christina Aguilera, like whoever's name I recognized, <laughs> I would just send a postcard to and make sure that they knew my name. So if we ever were in the room together, it would like tick something off that they've heard of me before. And I sent a couple of those to David Wayne. And I sent some because they announced that Stella was going to become a TV show. And a writer's assistant at Stella named Ryan Iverson was like, I've gotten your postcards. Who are you? Uh, I also got your email. I had emailed the production company a few times. And I was like, hey, man, I, 21. I'm in New York. I, this is what I can do. And he's like, well, come in. You can be David Wayne's stand-in. And then I showed up and I'm too tall. So they were like, do you know how to work sound? And I lied and said, yes, I do. And I was the sound PA for the first three episodes of Stella. And it got me on a set. So I understood the dynamic of being on set by wrangling cables and holding the second boom and just seeing how everything worked. It was very valuable. That's an incredible breaking into show business story. That's awesome. It was, was awesome. That, um, did John Hamburg direct those? Who who directed the Stella? Um, well, David Wayne did the episodes that I worked on okay. and then it flipped and went union. And so the sound mixer Griffin, who was a great, he knew I had never done anything and he was a great guy <laughs> is a great guy. But on my last day, after three or four weeks, I get my last paycheck that I'm actually in the second episode as an extra. They needed young people to be extras in a campaign manager scene and they yell at each other. And I look up on the phone and I'm wearing a Michael in black for president t-shirt so all my friends and family back show were like, Scotty moves to New York and in three months gets on television. This guy's going to make it. <laughs> Not knowing that extras are treated worse than furniture. And um, the David Wayne directed those. And after that, I don't know. I remember Eric Appel, I think, was an editor on okay, it. Okay, yeah. I may be thinking of something else. Um, great writers. Uh, Jesse Klein was a Comedy Central exec on it. I used to have to give her her... Uh, her headphones every day and be like here you go 
Uh, <laughs> so it was a great, interesting time to learn how to be on a real TV set and to see like little rewrites and little improvs. And I, I listened to your podcast. I listened to this podcast and it's always funny. One of the things I learned on the first day was there's a scene where one of the actors was just supposed to look out and in the script, he's supposed to look at a pigeon and just talk to a pigeon about how he's feeling. <laughs> so they had an animal wrangler. May, it might've been the first shot that day. And the first pigeon they put on this fake tree just flies right up into the rafters of the studio instantly. And the, the guy's like, don't worry about it. And he puts a second pigeon on it and four in a row just wouldn't stay on the tree, just fly directly into the rafters. And I'm, I've never been on TV set before. And they were like, all right, let's just cut that scene entirely. Michael, you're going to do it into, the, into a mirror, but there's no more pigeon on set. And I was like, oh, okay. You can just make it up as you go if you need to. Yeah, writing can get can get you out of all kinds of production problems. <laughs> get a writer on set, you can fix all kinds of things. That's right. So I knew I, I was an aspiring writer, but I, I worked on as a PA for three years on whoever would hire me, lots of pilots and that sort of thing too. And it was great because I really did learn just the demeanor on being on set that served me later on running shows and stuff like that. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Dr. Sydney McElroy. That, that is true. It's important in this context because we host a medical history podcast called Sawbones. Oh, I thought we were going to, we should have worked on that. Sawbones. Sawbones isn't afraid to ask the hard hitting questions like, are vaccines as safe and reliable as they want us to believe? Yes. Do I have to get a flu shot? Yes. Uh, okay. Is science a miracle? No. We have a lot of great history for you and a lot of laughs. And sometimes the history is so bad that there's no laughs, but... You'll learn something, you'll feel something. And it's always Sawbones. That's right. Every week on MaximumFun.org. Okay, so what's... All right, so then keep taking me through. So you're doing stuff with Kristen and Kurt, and when... Like, at what point do you, like, get representation and, Sure. You know, so I... It was interesting because in New York, it's obviously different than Los Angeles. A lot of people were going in a lot of directions, but there were a limited number of shows that you could do in New York. It was Letterman, it was Daily Show, and it's, this was even maybe a little before Colbert. And so I had a lot of friends and comics and stuff competing to get certain slots and certain writing jobs. And they would always talk about reps. They would always talk about Writers Guild. They would talk about all these things that I didn't understand and didn't know. So I just focused on getting any job I could. And my first little paid check was I got $100 to write jokes for Indecision 2008, probably, or 2006, whatever it was. And it was supposed to be digital content for Comedy Central on the election night about swing states. And instead, they used them as a ticker on the bottom while Jon Stewart was like reading results. And I saw my jokes on screen. So that was a little bit of encouragement to be like, okay, you're good enough to get a joke on The Daily Show, even if it's not mentioned. It's just scrolling by and it's about New Mexico. Still, it's The Daily Show at its peak. Yes. And also, I never cared about the money. I, I knew I like stacking credits would be the way to break in. So a friend who is now Kristen Shaw's husband, but then was a writer on The Daily Show, Rich Blomquist, he uh, recommended me to a showrunner named Rob Anderson, who was putting together a show called Mega Drive, which was a reality show on MTV. And they hired me. And I was the only writer uh, until we brought on a couple people later. 
And so I came up and my first four or five jobs were in reality television, uh, writing segment ideas, writing host copy, just kind of being the creative in the room. And at some point I got an email from an agent at uh, CAA called, named Cece Hirsch. And she said, who are you? We see your name is on five call sheets of CAA clients and we don't know who you are. Would you like to grab a lunch? And so I went up to the offices in New York during my lunch break on a show, I think called Money from Strangers. And she said, hey, we rep, you know, it was like Nikki Glaser, Sarah Schaefer and all these really cool writers, young comic people. And they're like, and you're a writer on every one of them. And we're just wondering what you're trying to do. Are you trying to be a reality producer? Are you trying to be a creator? And I said, I want to create TV shows. And they said, do you have any specs? And I had a couple specs. Uh, I, I, excuse me, I had a couple original pilots and I sent it. And the next day I had a meeting with like seven agents and they signed me when I was, I'd probably been working in TV for three or four years. So that was, that allowed me to transition out of non-scripted into scripted was having just people go like, here's an opportunity. And that was it. So it was really working in reality TV for any production company for, I mean, so, so, so many failed pilots and shows. And then suddenly I had an agent and then I moved out to Los Angeles about one year later, met Whitney Cummings at her house. She hired me on another reality show called Love You Mean It. And from that, I started connecting the dots um, and met Adam Devine, who was a guest on that show. And uh, it just started to go from there where like all the relationships I'd built in my twenties started to really pay off right around the time I was turning 30. And so workaholics had happened or it was Andre, or were you there from the, from the beginning of that? Like where was Adam in that process? They were, they had just finished season three. And okay. it was a hit. People of, I was 27, I guess, something like that. And so everybody in New York would be like, Scotty, I know a show you're going to love. And they told me so many times I was sure I was going to hate it. And my girlfriend at the time was like, we just watch one. I think you're going to like it. And I loved it. And then two months later, I was out in LA and Adam's manager was somebody I knew who had repped a bunch of comic friends and I met Adam at the old smokehouse in Burbank and we had two drinks mm -hmm. and he said, I'm creating a stand-up show for Comedy Central. They already bought eight episodes, but I don't know what it is. Do you want to figure it out with me? And we created Adam Devine's house party together. And oh, wow. as soon as we did season one and they loved it, he said, do you want to be a writer on Workaholics? We need three new writers. I can put in a good word. Yeah. And I said, yeah. And so I got... I basically, it was cool because House Party was a scripted hybrid. So I went from fully non-scripted to scripted hybrid to scripted in a year, which was great. So how long were you on Workaholics? I did four seasons. I did seasons four, five, six, seven, and loved it. We just had a blast and there were a lot of great writers and I learned a lot really quick. And the showrunner, Kevin Etten, was a really good boss. And it wasn't, a lot of people assume with shows like that, that are sort of young and fun and cool like that, that they're like, oh, it must be a party. You guys must be, get high in the writer's room. You must get <laughs> drunk in the writer's room. And we didn't. It was very fun. Those guys were not only the stars and the creators, but also writers. So it was cool to be able to say, like, what would Adam do in this scene and have the character and the creator and the person go, he would do this. 
And so instead of that speculating about certain characters' backstories or whatever, these guys had already had the chemistry. They had already created this hit show kind of out of nowhere on Comedy Central. So it was the perfect learning environment to slide into a scripted show. And I think I ended up writing our six episodes and then co-writing two more. So it was like really fun to go from nothing to being in the scripted mix. Yeah. And just being able to be there for that long you're really able to like learn how to do the job you know a lot of people they yes. just like oh i guess i've six episodes on this one and 13 on that one and you don't get in the real rhythm of producing a show season after season which is where you really learn how to break stories and do it you learn how to break stories you you learn when stories can't get broken when you <laughs> it's amazing when you get that one that in one day you break a story that everybody enjoys and you get sent off to you know outline and then there were a few episodes that over the four seasons we would always have it on the whiteboard and always come back to it and try to figure out a new way in <laughs> and a lot of them are still dead and that was cool too and it was also nice because that first season when you're just a staff writer i think i was on 10 weeks it might have been 16 weeks but i think it was 10 and then it was just up and there was no pickup. You know, there was no option to stay on longer. Uh, I got one script and then the next year you get two. And then after that, you're one of the guys staying after to fix scripts, you know, till 10 p.m. And then the season after that, you're on set filling in for the showrunner when he's got to direct next week's episode. So it was really cool to advance. And it felt more like what TV school or film school would be in real time. Right. Yeah. It's what's being lost as you know shows get all get canceled after one or two seasons and writers just don't have a chance to go to school like that to really learn to you know to be training the next generation of showrunners can't do that when people are just hopping from show to show in these mini rooms yes and blurring talent levels you know having co-eps that come in from a totally different type of show and then they kind of fix something in a way you've never considered before I think my second season in there, we're all trying, we knew what we wanted. We knew what the new thing for the episode was going to be. And we kept getting to this backfire and we kept getting this backfire and we just couldn't figure out how to figure out the rest of the episode. And this newer guy who was a seasoned writer just literally went up to the whiteboard and erased the, where sort of the backfire would be and just slid it up to it's the problem of the episode and all of us just went, oh, that's right. That's it. And then we probably broke it in 45 minutes. But it was, we were all, it was in the wrong place. And I had not, in my own solo writing, sitting at home, I had never done anything like that, where you're like, I'm sure I wanted to build to this funny scene. But then what if that funny scene's the second scene in the episode? Is It's just a better way to be. So that's a classic Jimmy Burroughs move. Yeah. Uh, he, he would just be like, what if this wasn't the, the second act break what it, it was the cold open you know it was just like and you know sometimes that magically does fix things but it's just it sometimes know. does <laughs> and, and then like you're saying too like being in the room especially with those guys we were all just really young and having fun is like sure some days we would do a three-hour full room debate where people are standing and like half shouting at each other if could the rock beat a chimpanzee in a fight <laughs> with no weapons and then we're like youtubing the strength of chimpanzees and then how tall is the rock and all these things and so those moments you just start to love the people around you especially if it's like a really well constructed room and so i still have nothing but love for all the writers that passed through and a few that were on as long as i was it was just so fun to like 
those moments was just as good as really getting excited about an episode. Yeah. And some, and they are work. They don't seem like their work, but those, those things often just somehow they, and they come out in a story down the road. Like it's, it seems like screwing around, but it's somehow part of the process. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, wow. That sounds like a blast. All right. So then there's, I'm curious. I mean, I know this is you, you worked with Sasha Baron Cohen. I know I I'm skipping ahead. I don't know sure. what I'm skip, skipping over. We don't have to skip over it, but I'm curious about that experience on Who is America. That was a great experience. I had worked, um, I had interviewed a few times with his company and had worked with a couple of the producers that worked on that, uh, like earlier stuff, Borat, Bruno, and those things. And I got a call. And it was definitely from my agent. He said, they're starting this new show. It's Sasha Baron Cohen. Here's what it's going to be. The pay is really low, but it's daily. And you can kind of come in and do it, see how tomorrow goes. And if they like you, they might have you back. So I did that two or three times. And I noticed that Sasha and I got along really well. And in those rooms, it would be maybe 10 late night writers, a few people that were like sketch writers, and then a few people like myself who kind of do a a few different things. And I just noticed he and I, I was getting a lot of stuff through and I was getting a lot of stuff in. And then two months go by, didn't work on it at all. It was cool to work with him because he really is so creative. He takes his own notes. He just is extremely focused person. You could tell when he really is into something, it's he's fully listening to every word you're pitching. He's not staring away and kind of half-assing it. And I got a call towards when they were in production. And then I was on it for probably two months of just figuring out episodes and who the right kind of marks would be. And it was great. So my experience with that was it was bare bones writer room, nothing flashy, sitting in like hard chairs on folding tables that had just been set up. But then the result I thought worked really well because he's just such a tremendous talent. And I guess you had the your reality TV experience too. So you're really blending all these things that you you'd done in your career. Yes, we had a great moment early on when I was writing for Whitney's show for Love You Mean It, where the writer's room it was really great writers who have all gone on to really cool careers. And we were making each other cry laughing with this one bit. And I don't remember what it was, but we were laughing so hard. And then Whitney's like, what are you guys laughing at? I can hear you in my office. And we walk her, the head writer was Karen Kilgariff. And we walk her through the setup and the joke that she was going to deliver. And she didn't really laugh. And we were all like, well, it's kind of funny because this and you'll get. And she just said, well, I have to say it. I'm the one that has to say that. And then you kind of remember that you're not just pitching jokes into a void, that somebody that that camera turns on and America's (laughs) watching it's that person has to say it. And it was such a simple sentence, but it really, so we didn't end up using that joke, but I, it stuck with me. And then when we were going over to who is America, a lot of people in those rooms are the jokey people that are just trying to get a laugh in the writer's room or in the Mm -hmm. brainstorm. And I never do that. I am very much supportive. I laugh. I'm, I'm love. I'm a big laugher in the room, but I will only pitch something that I think that the talent will want to say, and they are picturing themselves saying it and whatever the reaction is, you know, with Sasha, it doesn't always have to be a laugh in real life. He's with real people. So he's not going to get a laugh. He, you right. just want to give him the best line to say. So that person has the biggest reaction, which is a total non-scripted producer, non-scripted writer thing to do. 
yeah that's such a unique form of writing right <laughs> you know, yeah it's like it's just you know we yeah there's an audience they're not there they're not really present when you're shooting it's it's for how that's going to play to the audience but you've got someone who doesn't isn't aware they're in a in a comedy scene that's right <laughs> and if you punch down too much the audience feels sorry for the sorry person for them. you're making yeah. fun of so you have to do this balance where you it's it's what all non-scripted producers do you you lead the mark into saying what you want them to say by suggesting it and sometimes it's even like when you do man on the street stuff you go hey do you want to be in this segment and the person says yeah sure and you go, we're going to just ask you some questions about volcanoes. Just say, like, I know there are volcanoes in Hawaii and the big ones in Pompeii. And I hope one doesn't, like, hit me and my family while we're shopping. And as soon as that person, you say, all right, guys, go ahead, action. That person's like, I know they're in Hawaii. I know they're in Pompeii. And I hope one does. They say what you want them to say by just suggesting it because they're so nervous to look dumb. And you can do that even with your host. You know, you can have Sasha basically walk a person in a scene into saying what you want them to say. It's a great, it's great. And it's definitely the basis of reality television. Wow. So cool. Um, okay. And then now you've got Ma on your yeah, resume too. You wrote Ma. So, okay. So it does like a horror movie out of, you know, this doesn't seem like it would logically follow from everything that's come before it but how so how does that come about i adam divine and i became really great writing partners but at the time comedy movies uh, they weren't getting made there it was sort of at that standstill where he was attached to things we had rewritten a couple together netflix was really rising and i had lost interest in i'd lost partial interest in getting staffed i was watching TV show buys getting smaller and smaller. And I was watching my friends who had worked on shows like the Millers or Goldbergs or whatever, suddenly starting to really scramble to find year long work in TV writing. And I've always been a huge horror fan. And I was in new Orleans and working on a film shoot and it came to me in a flash and I wrote down the notes in my phone is two paragraphs and it was the whole entire movie ma in two paragraphs and i went home inspect it um in 2017 and i reached out to my movie agent who we couldn't get any of my comedy features going at all like nothing and i said hey i want to switch over and do horror for a while and he was like hey you're kind of known as a comedy guy and you're coming out of workaholics i said oh, i already wrote it and he said, well, can I read it this weekend? And to his credit, he read it that weekend. And on Monday morning, he said, can I send it to Blumhouse? And I said, yes, of course, that would be amazing. <laughs> this was before Get Out. So this was, they had done Paranormal Activity and Sinister and Insidious and those type of movies, but it wasn't the culturally significant horror studio at the time. And the next day I got a call from... Ryan Turek, I think, at Blumhouse, who said, hey, can you come in tomorrow? We have some notes. And my agent was like, I don't know what that means. And so I went in and they said, we read it last night. Um, and there was a guy named Cooper Samuelson also there. They said, we have three notes. We love this script. Oh, we're going to make your movie this year. We called each other on page 55 and said, we're making this movie. So <laughs> congratulations. What do you think of Octavia Spencer? I said, I, I love Octavia Spencer. He goes, great. We're going to send it to her. 
And one month later, I had sent the notes in within a week because they're really minimal, easy notes. Octavia calls me from The Shape of Water. And she said, I love your movie. I love Dateline. I love true crime. I love murders. Nobody ever gives me these parts. And I love that she doesn't die in, in the beginning. And let's do it. And so from specking it to it getting made was under a year. And we never sent it to anybody but Blumhouse because they bought it the day they got it. That's incredible. And the day that they gave me notes was, I think, a Tuesday. And that weekend, Get Out had crossed $100 million. And <laughs> so all of a sudden, like Blumhouse was the place to be. But I had already, they already had my script and they already saw that if they could get somebody like Octavia to be the lead, that they could continue on to this thing of like a black woman who's invisible in this town and these teenagers. And, and at the center of it is what you'll do for popularity. So I just, um, I, knew, I could see the writing on the wall that comedy movies weren't going to be coming back for a little while. And I just had a spec at the right place at the right time. And then it did well. So that opened it up for writing movies. And there've been, and so you've done some more since then. I've, yes, I've did. The best part was after Ma, actually before Ma even came out, I really started getting in roundtables and doing rooms with great feature writers, a lot at Legendary, wrote a couple movies there, uh, did a final pass on the dialogue for Sonic, did a bunch of scenes for Detective Pikachu, big movies like that. And then they called me in 2020 and said, do you know the story of the machine of, of the Burt Kreischer stand-up routine? And I had heard it and they said, can you come in? tomorrow and pitch a take on it and so I went in the next day and pitched my version and then he the people at Legendary were great about it and they're like well you pitch it to Bert at the end of this week so I pitched it to Bert and he was like I love this and so they bought it in the room and I wrote it in April 2020 and I think they shot it in the fall of 2020 something like that I wasn't so on set for that one fill people in on what that is for people who don't know so the machine is a true story and it's a comedy bit by Burt Kreischer, who when he was in college, he was like a fifth year senior. The movie Van Wilder is based on his experience because Rolling Stone wrote an article about Burt saying he was like the biggest party animal in the United States. And so he had this reputation of being a larger than life, big drinker, big party guy. And he, he needed a language requirement to graduate from Florida State. And so he took Russian for some reason. And I think it was because like the TA said, I'll pass you if you just come to class. Like I, I this class goes away unless I have an 18th student in this class. So he did that. And then she said something like this trip to Russia goes away. This, this exchange trip goes away unless we get one more person. So he goes and then he... At the time, the Berlin Wall had just come down. I think it was like 1994, 93 or 94. And you had to have members of the mafia protect you while you were there. And there were different mob members on the trains. There were some in Moscow. There were some in St. Petersburg. And so they had literally banditti mob guys living on the dorm room floor with these Florida exchange students. <laughs> and they said, stay away from those men. And instead, Bert gets super drunk and befriends all of them and drinks and can out drink him in vodka. And he wanted to speak Russian to him and be cool. But instead, he just said, I'm the machine. And they were like, oh, you're the machine. And then he ended up partying with them. And one night he robs a train with Russian mobsters um, without really knowing what he was doing because he was so drunk. And I turned that into a hangover style comedy. 
and it should be coming out soon. But it was just, they said, do you know it? Can you come in tomorrow? And I said, yes, yes. And got lucky. It was a good pitch. Okay. And then, and you also have a pot. <laughs> it's just like, it's, it's such a cool variety of stuff. I'm sort of blown away. And then you've got a podcast. That I you've have been a doing. podcast. Yeah. So tell, tell people about that. So that podcast is called Bananas. It's on this network called Exactly Right. And Bananas is a strange news podcast where Kurt Brownoller and I take real strange news stories from around the world. If any of it inspires stories from our own life, we start telling our own stories. And we have female, trans, or non-binary guests. We have great guests. We have, you know, everybody from musicians like Phoebe Bridgers. We've had scientists. We've had educators. Uh, we've had lots of actors and comedians. We had Charlize Theron was on an episode, which is maybe the biggest get in comedy podcast history. Yeah, yeah. And so we do 50 minute episodes every Tuesday that are always positive, very feel good. And it we happened to launch in April 2020 unwittingly. And it was just what people needed. If you didn't want to watch Tiger King and you didn't want to read about COVID, or anything bad in the world in a scary time we just were like the silly oasis and it really took off so it's been a great thing we tour it we do live shows uh it's been awesome i love bananas it was a pleasant surprise and something i never ever planned on doing but i love it so what's on the list that you haven't done like what's a a kind of writing or kind of show movies or something that you just still haven't done it's a great question because I really have tried to do a lot. And every year, even though, like I said, I, I really try to take more of the creator path and not a staffing path. So I've had really good luck pitching extremely different pilots and shows based on IP, based on whatever. So right now I'm working on a show called Master Thief for AMC Studios that's based on a true story of a guy who is the best cat burglar in North America for like 30 years. And when he was in prison, he wrote a textbook for future cat burglars called Master Thief, which is fantastic. <laughs> uh, and so I really like hunting for old books, old stories, anything like that, and then trying to develop them into limited series. That's what I've been doing lately. I do want to get the right tone of a horror comedy long-running series going on. I think shows like American Horror Story are really cool. I think Stranger Things is really cool, but I still think there's some room in there for things that are tonally closer to like Cabin in the Woods. Uh, the fun, a little self-aware, but also really scary is sort of a tone I'm looking to do. And then on the opposite side, I really want to write a big, Jumanji or Night at the Museum, a big four quadrant, huge family movie that people love. So I'm always trying to get in on those. But unsurprisingly, those are usually about $150 million. So you really got to really got to knock it out of the park for those. Sure. That's sort of the, the aim is I really like doing this thing. And I've had the last five or so years. Thanks so much because of Ma's success. It's been able to write movies and I've been able to sell pilots and it's been fun. And it's been a surprisingly stable path in a world where so many of my friends have watched their jobs go away. So, yeah, you you were smart to diversify. It's just like what writers have to do. And I think yes. you know, especially for people who 
you know, had a very lucrative niche for a long time. Oh, I can just write, write multicams and go from yes. multicam to multicam or whatever it is. And suddenly it's just like, oh, no, you can't. Like those jobs are gone. And if you hadn't figured out, you know, a way to do a lot of different stuff, it just gets really tricky to piece together yeah. a, a living. If you didn't realize yeah. people would rather rather watch a singer wearing a mask, you are screwed. And yeah. so I was really, I felt like I was right on that cusp of, like even on Workaholics, the ratings for my first season were very good. And by the end, they're so bad because people started to watch things only on streaming and you could watch networks like Comedy Central disappear and become irrelevant. So instead of just yelling at my agents, I just was like, I'm going to just spec certain things in different directions. So nobody says that they say, can we see a sample? I'll just have a sample for every type of writing <laughs> and then use the relationships that it was you know built over 15 years with talent and directors to prepackage things so that when I take out pitches, it's likely I'll at least get to write them. And that's sort of been my strategy for like the last, like I said, five, six years. So I don't know. We'll see. I'm just going to I think we're all just going to have to keep um, getting lucky and, and taking bets on yourself in different directions. Yeah. Well, try and get this uh, revived. I will. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah, it's really fun. And um, I mean, this cast, which you pretty much uh, mostly put together, was so good, too. Like, they were nice people. And it was so cool to see them all on one thing together. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that we get, you know, it's usually nice people who do this show because it's just like, hey, will you just read this like failed pilot for free? You know, like dicks aren't going to say yes to that. But like cool people yeah. who like, who do it for the love of, you know, comedy and performing. Like, yes. That's who shows up. And these were all just like great people. I mean, and Courtney, some of the best like uh, hiccuping. Incredible, I've right? Heard. Absolutely. Just shockingly realistic. Yeah, she's the real deal. So good. All of these, you know, I knew Lucas because he's obviously done it, but Erica and Jesus, and, you know, I knew Sabrina, but like, you know, a lot of people I didn't know who all just uh, nailed it. And I do have to apologize for one thing, which is like, you know, when we're doing these reads, I often don't want to stop the flow yes. to take make people go back. But one of my favorite jokes, which is Patch, which is Ray Ball complaining about his lower back and Patch saying, shove your lower back up your ass. Yes. Is that even possible? <laughs> Sabrina did say, shove your lower my. back up my ass. Yes. Which is significantly less funny. She was in a role. I didn't stop. I didn't stop and have her take it back. I hope you forgive me. because. Oh, uh... my God. Of course. <laughs> I love this podcast. I was so excited to meet Ben and to be a part of it. I really appreciate it. This was so fun for me. And uh, I, I really enjoy hearing the stories of other writers and producers. So I am completely grateful. And if, if Sabrina blows a joke, I'll take it out on her on my own time. <laughs> it has nothing to do with you. All right, good. All right. I'm just so glad I got that off my chest. All right, Scotty, this was a pleasure. Thanks for letting us do it. I, you know, I wish you just the best with all of these many things and especially with getting this thing brought back from the dead. Thank you very much. The joy's been mine. <laughs> all right, cool. Thank you. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. Dead Pilot Society is produced by me and my co-host Ben Blacker and our associate producer Noah Finling. It is edited and mixed by Jordan Katz. Uh, if you like us, leave us a review, tell a friend, 
Follow us on social media because we're starting to do some live shows and you want to uh, check those out. Uh, definitely come to the show if you're in L.A. on January 12th. There will be a link in the show notes. Uh, we are at Dead Pilots Pod on Twitter and Dead Pilot Society on Instagram. Happy New Year's, everybody. Uh, and until next time, I'm Andrew Reich. Thank you for listening. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.